Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. Finally, they came to a place called the Skull. All three were crucified there, Jesus on the center cross and the two criminals on either side. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How can I comprehend the magnitude of this act of love? It was that one moment in history when Jesus was dying on the cross that connected every sin from yesterday, today, and tomorrow. This plea for forgiveness was and is the greatest act of love and unmatched mercy for me and for my family, my friends and neighbors, my coworkers, and even my enemies, those who have hurt me and pierced my heart with pain. In the depths of pain and suffering on the cross, Jesus asked for those crucifying him to be forgiven, those who beat him, mocked him, spit on him, drove nails in him, those who gambled for his clothes, and those who verbally assaulted him. This prayer for forgiveness embraced all of humanity, not just those in the midst of that horrific murder. We all play a part in the crucifixion of Jesus. Each time we sin, we play a part in beating him, mocking him, murdering him, and denying him as our Savior. He prayed for us. He died for us. He opened up his heart and the gates of heaven for us. Accepting Jesus as my Savior inspires me to be obedient to his word. Obedience calls for forgiveness. Therefore, obedience calls me to forgive others. When Jesus was on the cross, he reached out to me and opened his heart to me. And now it's my responsibility to reach out to him and open my heart by choosing obedience by choosing forgiveness. Thieves love their friends and hate their enemies. Murderers love their friends and hate their enemies. And me? Do I love my friends and love my enemies? Every morning I pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And many times I robotically pray past these words because it is too hard for me to forgive someone who has hurt me. And yet, when I let God in, he transforms me to forgive others. He is the light of forgiveness through me unto them. Forgiving them brings me peace and it frees me from the power and control they have over me. And then there's me. I am a sinner. Every time I fall to the prey of Satan, 
I sin. Sometimes I don't even realize I'm sinning. And sometimes I do. Satan is sneaky enough to draw me in and hold me captive where I convince myself that whatever I'm doing is okay in the eyes of God. I find myself worshiping other idols, those which give me perceived pleasure, power, and control, like material possessions, self-reliance, popularity, the approval of others, money, titles, perfectionism, and portraying to the world we are a perfect family free of challenges. Satan relishes himself in pride, becoming a leech to thoughts, putting myself first, others second, and God third. And what about those moments when I convince myself that my sin isn't as bad as someone else's, like when I contribute to gossip or when I pass judgment? At least I didn't kill anybody. At least I didn't steal anything. <clears throat> but God says, a sin is a sin, and we are all equal in his eyes. We are all sinners, and we are all God's children, and we are all forgiven. Dear Jesus, I am rich with the fruits of the Holy Spirit created by your death on the cross. Thank you for the gifts of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. <laughs> Amazing grace, how sweet the sound of those words you said. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23, 39-43. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself, and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested. Don't you fear God even when you've been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today... You will be with me in paradise. I'm always struck by the fact that Jesus always turns our thinking upside down. Oftentimes, Jesus flips the script, and what ends up happening is the opposite of what we would expect. Time and time again, Jesus reveals God's power through what the world would perceive as apparent weakness. And this story is another example of that. So here we are in the story, and Jesus is at his apparent weakest moment. They tried to get Jesus to die in what they hoped would be humiliation and shame. But God's strength and power through Jesus was on full display as both Jesus and this criminal were hanging on their crosses. Certainly the criminal was at his weakest moment. Yet in that moment of apparent weakness for both of them, Jesus powerfully poured out God's love, God's grace, and God's mercy. We don't really know the details of this criminal's life. I have no idea specifically what this man did to end up on that cross next to Jesus. But it must have been pretty bad 
because, in fact, he actually said he thought he deserved to die for his crime. But when everybody around him was mocking and scoffing at Jesus, he found a little belief in Jesus. He didn't find a perfect faith. None of us have perfect faith. But he found a little bit of faith. It was small and imperfect, but it was faith. And then Jesus takes this man's small, imperfect faith, and he powerfully transforms this man. Jesus takes this man's despair, and he turns it into hope and joy. When we are at our weakest, God's at his strongest. And I can make this story very personal for me. Fifteen years ago, I was at my weakest point, personally and professionally both. I'd gone through a divorce, and I was, at that time, I was in a business partnership that was literally crumbling less than one year after opening the doors of a business. For the first time in my life, I felt lost and I felt alone. Up to that point, I figured I could do it all on my own. I was wrong. And then one day, I was standing in the middle of a grocery store parking lot in Phoenix, Arizona, where I lived, and I had a conversation with God. And I admitted to him that I needed his help. I didn't know what I needed to do, and I didn't know where I needed to go. But I knew at that moment I needed God's help. And I asked him for it. And then things began to change. Two months later, on a visit back here in Iowa, back home, my brothers had a meeting with me. And they told me that it was time for me to move back to Iowa. Turns out that my brother Dennis, who's now my business partner, didn't know why, but he felt God was leading him to bring me back home to Iowa. I don't have the time to give you all the details of how everything unfolded over the next several years, but God had begun his powerful transformation project on me. It wasn't a thunderbolt, but it was a slow, steady reworking of my life. God began to surround me with people that led me and discipled me. There's a long list of people that God used in this reclamation project, but the biggest piece to the story happened when God brought a woman named Janine into the front door of our business here in Ankeny. And amazingly enough, she was also the subject of one of God's reclamation projects at the time. As you might guess, Janine is now my wife, and God has blessed us with two amazing children. I started connecting with people in the church, and all of a sudden I went from being lost and alone to being surrounded with God's people. I now have a relationship with God that I'd never known before. The fact that the creator of the universe would want a relationship with me blows my mind. And I'm guessing that the criminal on the cross had a very similar feeling. In my weakest moment, I took my small and imperfect faith to God, and he used it. I have been transformed by God's grace, God's love, and God's mercy much like the criminal on the cross. I am so far from having things figured out and so far from being perfect. My faith is still very small and still very imperfect. But because of this transformation, I am now filled with hope and joy. And it's a joy that nothing in this world can take away from me. And it's the same hope and joy that was given to the criminal on the cross. If you just close your eyes, 
Can't you just imagine Jesus saying to the criminal on the cross, it's no accident that you're here. I've been praying for you. In earthly terms, what seemed to be Jesus' weakest moment, he was at his strongest. And in our weakest moments, Jesus says to us, I'm strong enough for you. The message that Jesus gives to the criminal on the cross is, in your weakness, I've got your back. You don't have to be perfect because I am. I'm strong enough for both of us. I'm reclaiming you. And to me and to all of us here, Jesus says, you belong to me. Bring me your imperfect faith, and I will powerfully transform it into pure, perfect joy. John 19, 25 through 27. Standing near the cross was Jesus' mother and his mother's sister and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, Here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. When I think about this, it makes me think about the precious relationship between my son and I. And it blows my mind that somebody sacrificed their son because I'm so deeply loved, yet very much need a savior. Poor Mary. Imagine with me for a moment witnessing your child's death at the result of others' sin. Imagine her overwhelming feeling of shame and guilt for not being able to take care of her son and her cries that he would just pass and go to heaven like, he knew, like she knew he would. That's a mama's love mixed with a mama's pain. Maybe this Good Friday has you feeling a similar mix of love and pain like the first one more than 2,000 years ago. Whether your baby is facing a sickness you can't cure, a hurt you can't fix, an addiction you can't cure, you are feeling the pain. What's remarkable is that through the cross happens the greatest act of love ever written through the pain, through the brokenness, the disbelief, disappointment, sacrifice, through death, love lives. Maybe you aren't feeling the love today. Maybe your dream of being a mom isn't your reality, or the relationship with your own mom isn't what you had hoped it would be. Maybe the relationship with your kids is strained, and it doesn't look the way you imagined it would. Mary and Jesus certainly didn't have a traditional relationship. He was born to her in the most unnatural way and left her in a way that would break any parent. And truth be told, for his entire life, Jesus really did his own thing. Maybe your kids do too. One of my favorite ways to think about the resurrection story is that Jesus died on a Good Friday, heaven had had enough, and started counting to three. How many times have you counted to three to your kids? I think one of the greatest gifts in the Easter story is the promise of new life. But I often forget that for me to experience that personally, death and pain come first. On the edge of death, Jesus felt the power of his mom's never-ending love, and it stirred him to speak to her and his disciples with some of his last words. Woman, this is your son. And then he said to his disciple, this is your mother. Maybe when Jesus made that connection from the cross, he did it to help us 
to know what to do with the pain of relationships that aren't all we wish they were. What if we were brave enough to believe that love can live? It can live in complication. It can live when we wish that things were different. And it can even live through death. I think Jesus created this opportunity for new love at his death because he knew we needed it. Sometimes love looks just exactly like we always imagined, but oftentimes our most treasured love comes to us after the death of something. The death of a hang-up, a lifestyle, maybe even our life. Love's really tricky like that. On this day, let's lean into the pain of Good Friday as if it's bringing us opportunity for new life and new love, because it is. And plus, we all know what happens when God starts counting to three. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. At about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? It's an article of our Christian faith that Jesus is fully God and fully human. How this works is a mystery to us, but we believe it. Not everyone always has. There were some early followers of Jesus who just could not get their heads around the notion that God could and would die on a cross. So they decided that he did not. They taught instead that the divine part of Jesus left him before he was hung on the cross and that only the human part of Jesus was put to death. When we hear these words that Jesus cried out from the cross, sounds like maybe they were right. Have you ever felt abandoned? Man, I know I have. We all have. There's times in our lives when we feel utterly alone. Nobody understands what we are going through. Those who are closest to us just don't get it. Even God seems to be absent. How can we speak of a loving God in the midst of horror and hopelessness in our situations? What we need to know is that when Jesus cried these words out from the cross, they were not words of despair. He was quoting scripture. Psalm 22, to be exact. Check it out later. Psalm 22 begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? King David, who wrote this psalm, went on to say that in the past, others had been able to count on God, but he was a worm. Couldn't see why God would bother with the likes of him. Oh yes, he acknowledged that God is with him, but his troubles sure seem to be a lot closer, sucking the life out of him. But then a ray of light shines upon David's lament because he remembers. He remembers what God has done in the past. And by remembering, he finds hope for the present. 
And the psalm ends with David praising his faithful God. Jesus quoted these words from the cross to remind us that there is always hope, even when you might feel abandoned. St. John of the Cross, a Spanish monk, writing in the 1500s about what we call the dark night of the soul, says, God is intolerable darkness to the soul when he is near, for the excess of supernatural light darkens the natural light. In other words, sometimes God is so close to us that we can't see him. Perhaps this is the case for you right now in the circumstances in which you find yourself this night. As you try to make sense out of how your life looks right now. God did not abandon Jesus on the cross. He was there hanging on the cross until the very end. God has not abandoned you. You see, faith in Jesus is more than promises for the future, although they're real. Faith is about hope for right now. An assurance you have not been abandoned. God never will. John 19, 28. I thirst. Beyond the physical dehydration, Jesus sought to fulfill God's plan. To me as an everyday Christian, this thirst means practicing unity and accepting diversity. With all of the changes in our nation and community, political convictions are no longer political. They have crossed the line and impacted human and social rights under the guise of politics. I say all of this because I feel I've had to prove my place in this community more, that, more now than before. And if I feel this way, I fear for what my brothers and sisters, whether African American, Muslim, immigrant, LGTB, physically and mentally disabled, low income, must feel like. This community has grown so vastly and is revered as one of the best communities in the state. And as we continue to grow, and as we start to see more people coming in who do not look like us or behave the way that we do, I thirst that God will give us the wisdom to put ourselves in their shoes. I thirst for understanding. I thirst for the wisdom we can all step outside of ourselves to really think about what we could do for our families, our neighbors, and our community, for our fellow Christians and non-Christians to make a difference. I thirst for the wisdom to know how to walk Jesus-like. I thirst for compassion and human dignity to drive our everyday interactions with others. If this were part of our everyday fabric, we could reduce random acts of violence, focus more on the beauty of our differences, and respect the rights of all people, and promote fellowship and love within our communities. My daily concern as a mother of three teenagers is whether they're getting their homework done, whether they're on their electronics, and if they're making good decisions, 
healthy decisions. Some days we struggle, but we make it work. It's not a bad life. We have what we need, and sometimes we're lucky enough to have what we want. We're thankful for our everyday blessings. However, there lies the, pro the problem. We haven't been uh, faced with great adversity. We haven't had to worry about not having homework, not having electronics. We haven't been tested or challenged. It's easy for me to make judgments based on my experience. I feel this is the way that most of us look at the world and forget to look at it from a different perspective. I don't have the experience of being a refugee and making the decision to flee my home. I don't know what it's like to sacrifice everything I've known to keep my family from being brutalized or murdered. I don't know what it's like to break a man-made law to feed my family. I don't know what it's like to be LGBT and have to justify why I don't want to love someone of the opposite sex or fear that your family's love depends on this. I don't know what it's like. I don't know what it would do to me. And I can't bear to think what I'd do to my children's self-perception or self-worth. Never mind the theory of self-fulfilling prophecies. My plan is to provide my children an opportunity to see things from a different perspective and to instill this thirst in them. John 19, 29 and 30 says, a jar full of sour wine was nearby. So the soldiers soaked a sponge in it, placed it on a hyssop branch, placed it up to his lips. When he received the sour wine, Jesus said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his life. Now, when Scott asked me to uh, participate in tonight's service, um, I was pretty excited at first. Uh, I used to do this at my previous church, and it's been a while, so it's kind of like, like a bicycle. You never really forget how to speak publicly, but you get a little rusty at it. So um, I, got, I started preparing, and then I'm like, okay, this is really happening. Like, I'm getting nervous, and it, like, I'm here now. I'm not as nervous as I was for the first service, but I'm still pretty much terrified, so bear with me. Um, so I'm a, I, originally, I'm a history major, um, and with that, like, knowing that he gave me this passage to speak on, it's, like, it's so full of historical context, and there's, like, so much more going on behind the scenes than, than what we're really actually even going to be talking about tonight, but so in preparing for tonight's little, I guess, message or five-point sermon, it's not that long, I promise. Um, no, in, in preparing for this, I just, I really started diving into like the, the historical context of some of the, the, uh, the terms and the, the passages and um, talking about the, the sour vinegar or the, the wine. This was actually a drink that the Roman soldiers used to basically pass out to their, their crew when, uh, when they were like traveling long distances, it was supposed to like give them, give them strength and like, um, I guess kind of be some, some sort of like energy drink from, from the, the biblical times, I guess. And uh, my wife lovingly pointed out to me afterwards, she's like, you know, this could have been kombucha. She's kind of a, a granola head. So I, I don't I, maybe it was kombucha, who knows? It doesn't matter, but that's, that's beside the point. So it was, I was kind of getting derailed on that, but um, so then I started, I started looking at the other passages. Okay, it talks about hyssop. So they, they put this sponge soaked with this kombucha or whatever. 
on this, uh, this hyss hyssop branch to, uh, to lift it up to his lips. Now, hyssop is like, there's so much going on when, when we're talking about hyssop in the Bible because uh, this was a, a plant that the priests used countless times in, in multiple, multiple uh, purification ceremonies. They would, uh, they would take these branches, they'd like get them wet, and then they would like basically sprinkle some sort of like holy water or something on the people. Um, and it was, it was just a way of like cleansing themselves spiritually, showing that, um, I guess it was like an outward manifestation of an inward cleansing, if you would. Uh, but again, that's, that's not what we're talking about tonight. We're talking about Jesus' last words um, rather than just the, the, the action behind them, I guess. So, um, so Jesus takes his drink and then he says these words, it is finished. Now, three words. It's, it's basically like the mic drop line of Jesus' entire story. It's, it's the mic drop of like all of history, right? Um, everything comes to a head in this one line. And, and what I mean by that is that the word it, what, what is that significant of? It means basically in this context, everything that Jesus was doing, everything that his life was about is summed up in this word it. It is finished. Everything I came to do, Jesus is saying, I've done. Everything that God asked me to do, here it is. This is the last, the last thing. And we're done. And, and you can look back at Jesus' life. A lot of people um, at the time, they thought, you know, this guy was like a showman. He's doing these miracles. He's performing all these signs. People are like gravitating toward him. Uh, and that's great, but that's not what he was about. Like, yes, he was there to, to like heal the sick, raise the dead. Um, you know, the lame are walking. Blind people are seeing. That's, that's fantastic. But that was just a byproduct of, of his life. And Christ showed us how to live that life to the fullest. That's, that is why he came. That was his ultimate purpose, to show us how to live life and to pave the way to have a, a relationship with God. And what I mean by that is, think back, um, I think it's in Luke 2, um, Jesus' parents are, are coming back from like the Passover, and a day later, a day into their journey, they realize, uh, Joseph, where's Jesus? Mary's asking him, and he's like, dude, I thought he was with you. I don't know what the heck is going on. So they hustle back. They find him sitting in the temple, hanging out with all these priests and like elders and like the people that know God's word, and he's they're teaching that. He's a 12-year-old, a 12-year-old. Like, I was playing video games and like hanging out with friends and not worrying about anything business-related when I was 12. But this kid, this Jesus, this God in the flesh, as a child, he tells his folks, I'm being about my father's business. This is what I came to do. I came to proclaim the word. I came to preach, to live it, and that's what I'm doing as a 12-year-old. So from a very early age, Christ was just laser-focused on, on this goal. I'm trying to read a book right now that's like 400 pages. I kid you not. I have checked it out from the library. I have checked out three different separate books of the same book because I cannot seem to finish it. And I have renewed those all the maximum amount of time. I have even let time go by so it didn't seem suspicious when I just keep renewing the same book. But this 12-year-old is like laser-focused on this one thing. And I can't even read a book through the, all the way. Like, it, it's just ridiculous. But 
I mean, okay, so going back to, to everything that's going on. Jesus comes. He's got one, one focus in mind. That's to, to pave the way to have an unhindered relationship with God. Um, and, and back in this time, when people, when people wanted to, to get close with God and, and to basically have that relationship, you know, enter into covenants with God, there were sacrifices that were made. And Christ on the cross is that sacrifice. He's saying, I'm doing away with that system. It's over. You don't, you don't have to sacrifice these animals anymore. I've, I've done this as atonement for all sins, for all mankind, for all of time. It is finished. The one thing I came to do, I have done. And then the very last line, he bows his head and he gives up his, his life. He bows his head. To bow your head um, in this context is to express agreement out of respect. That's what the dictionary defines it as in this, in this context again. Um, and if we, if we recall, like the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus didn't want to be crucified. He was willing to be crucified, but he, in prayer that night, he asked God, he's like, if there's another way, like, let's do the other way. Like, I don't want to do this. And, and that's, I, remember, he's fully human, fully God at the same time. So those emotions that would be going through your mind, my mind, they are going through his mind as well. But it didn't, it didn't stop him from doing the job. So remember, it is finished. He bows his head. God, God never gave him another way out. He said, this is it. We're going to do it, whether I like it or not. It is finished. Bows his head out of respect to God and gives up his life. That's it. It's finished, guys. The work's been done. All you got to do is accept it and live the best that you can and just follow in his footsteps. Luke 23, 44 to 46. By this time, it was about noon, and darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. The light from the sun was gone, and suddenly... The curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. Then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. Three words jump out. Entrust, spirit, last. Last shall be first, right? When I hear the word last, I usually think of things like, that's it. It's finished. Can't change that. There is a finality to the word last. What if I hear the word last and think instead, that was then, this is now. That was last night, now it's today. There were six last or previous words, but this is the seventh. This changes everything. I'm now focusing on what's ahead, hope, anticipation, excitement. My body language changes and I become the person that I like and want to be. If I focus on the word last as being the end, I am looking back, and I want to place blame. June 1993. I had just graduated from college, moved to Des Moines, thinking about getting engaged to my now wife, Leah, and I get a call. Peter, we have the results of your blood test. 
we believe you have diabetes. What? How can that be? No way. There must be a mix-up. Who or what can I blame this on? There wasn't a mix-up. Life changed. Life was not finished. It was the beginning of life as I know. At work, I meet regularly with a business coach. We often talk about being intentional with my thinking to keep me looking forward. This helps eliminate blame. I can't change what happened, but I can be intentional with how I react, and that keeps me looking forward. Word number two, spirit, and more specifically, my spirit. Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. Jesus refers to the spirit being like the wind. In John 3, 8, Jesus says, The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going. I relate to the wind as I feel it on my physical body. But what's inside me? I think of spirit as my inner voice. My spirit is who I have an ongoing conversation with. God is present within me. How can I spend more time with him? That voice. I try to do this during my morning workout, while shaving and showering, in the car, at church, and other times in between. I know my relationship needs work, but I expect the future to be better. How do I know this? Word number three, entrust. Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. What? Give up control? I'm putting my life into his care and protection? I have faith, confidence, and an understanding that things may not end here on earth as I want. But I believe what comes next is going to be more incredible than I can imagine. This belief is questioned more than I want to admit, It was tested August 12, 2010. My family, Leah, myself, and the kids, Naomi, Lydia, and Levi, are at the Iowa State Fair. We just paid for the kids to jump on the trampolines, and Leah gets a call. I could see the life come out of her, and a moment later, I could see the horror in her face as she learned she had cancer. I can't imagine what I would have thought or said, but she says... Let the kids know we need a few minutes. In that moment, and in the days and weeks ahead, there was a lot of uncertainty. Accept God's presence. Leah was and has been an awesome patient, and our lives are forever changed. Our last lives, prior to a cancer diagnosis, aren't better than today. They're different than today. God, the Spirit, And the conversation I have with God is much deeper because of life's experiences. I entrust God is working in my life and will help me experience a deeper relationship with him. Then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last.